One of my favorite novels is Albert Camus' The Plague. It's the story, as some of you may know, of a small Algerian port city that has an epidemic pass through it and devastates the population. And the novel follows a variety of characters as they respond in the best ways they know how to the devastation in their midst. One of those characters is the town priest, Father Panelou. And at first, Father Panelou responds that the plague is God's will. It's all part of the plan kind of theology. That if this is happening to the town, they must have done something to deserve it. Father Panelou holds this perspective until he witnesses the death of a child from the plague. And it's a particularly awful scene. And something changes in Father Panelou. Not too long after he witnesses this child's death, he himself dies. But the interesting thing in the story is that he does not die of the plague. It's almost as if his body, his life force simply cannot or won't go on. The implication of this famous scene is that there is no theological argument, there is no philosophical proposition, there is no political idea that holds more weight than the death of a child. Of this, this morning, we are clear. We are clear because of Newtown, Connecticut. 27 murdered, 20 of them, as we all know, children. And so the name gets added to the list of Columbine and Nickel Mines and Virginia Tech and Paducah and Jonesboro and Tucson and Aurora and earlier this week, and I wasn't even planning to preach on it, how, how regular does that show we've grown accustomed, how I've grown accustomed to the atrocities of gun violence in this country? A mall outside Portland. I wasn't even going to preach on it. I wasn't even going to mention it this week. In the last 30 years, 61, 62 mass shootings in America. So many, we can grow numb. And yet we're not numb this morning. Something feels more raw, more real, more clear, more awful this morning. It reminds me that at this time of the year, sometimes when I take runs along the Wissahickon Creek and I pass a certain turn and I look up to where in the summertime, summertime when the living is easy, summertime when everything is green and abundant, when I look up there this time of the year and I look up and all the green is off the trees, I look up and I see this image that is there all the year long, a Native American chief, Teddy Uskung. He's there all the time. But I only see him, can see him. He is no longer obscured at this time of the year. He was there all along, but I did not see. Things hidden being revealed. This morning we see, not just do we see, but we feel in our hearts the cost of violence. We see some of the not just individual, but collective insanity of our violence-loving, violence-beholden, violence-celebrating culture. 
We feel that clearly. Today we can't escape it even if we wanted to. And I'm going to assume because you showed up here today and no one here is here today by accident that you didn't want to escape it. So we're not going to escape it together. We're going to face it together. Newtown, Connecticut will become and has already become one of those moments. One of those moments, where were you when you heard? Just think for a moment. It's only been less than 48 hours, but I think we'll all continue to remember. Where were you when you heard? I was emerging out of the most peaceful place that I could imagine, my mindfulness teacher training. All my technology was shut off, and I merged out into the streets of Center City, Philadelphia, ready to meet my wife, and we were going to go and spend the latter part of that Friday afternoon seeing the light display at Macy's in the old Wanamaker building. That's one of the real treats of this part of the country, this time of the year. And we decided that we were going to do it anyway. The world was going to keep turning or actually feel like it was stopping to turn whether we went to see the lights or not. And so we did. And if you've ever been there, you know that you can see it on one, two, three, four levels, a big wall in front of you. And as we looked down from the second floor, I saw there all of these families and all of these children, joyful and noisy the youngest one's completely oblivious. And isn't that the way it should be? And immediately, my mind snapped back to reality. That there are the families of 20 children in Connecticut who last Friday or the days before were planning something for their holidays exactly like this, who are now planning their children's funerals. When we pick up a frequency like this in life, it is so painful even if the signal is clear. And it wakes us up to what we already know, but often don't want to feel because it's just too painful. That life, as we just sang, is fragile. That there is sometimes terrifying and cold and awful darkness. And also something else as well, that, that the light, your light, my light, our light, matters. It matters right now. To not look away at this moment, it's a tricky thing. To see clearly the world around us and our own broken hearts right now. This, this is a spiritual practice. This is one of the reasons that spiritual practice is a core value at Wellsprings. Because if we're practicing every day, we are going to be as ready as we possibly can be, and no one can ever be entirely ready for what happened this past Friday in Newtown, Connecticut. But it means that we will not automatically go to that place of denial, to that place of not wanting to face because it's too painful. If our practice is to open up our minds and to open up our hearts to be present in this life, then we will learn what it is like to face life even when it is at its worst. This is a spiritual practice and it is the core, I think, of every spiritual practice. And yet it's still so difficult. I mean, I had, a, as I'm sure you all have, a too much moment. I've had several too much. This is too much kind of moments in the last, not even 48 hours. There was one particularly, though, that really sits with me. And it was, uh, it, it was one of the most understated pieces of reporting I saw. It was a reporter doing a stand-up live shot in front of a, a, a firehouse in Newtown and telling a story about the fact that 
after the school was continuing to be cleared and the children were brought to this particular fire department and the parents, many of the parents themselves of these children in this elementary school in Sandy Hook were drawn to this fire department to wait for their children. And some would experience that. I mean, those of you who are parents, you can't even imagine the unbelievable relief that their child was alive. Until the moment came, the reporter said, it was announced to the parents who were left there waiting. There are no more children coming. And the wails that went up for the parents who would be waiting for a child who would not arrive. It reminds me of a favorite small passage from the Hebrew Scriptures. King David, for all of his power, for all of his might, loses his beloved child Absalom and says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Staying with those moments, it's tricky. And I know we've all felt moments of times, and we will continue to, of being overwhelmed. And at those moments, it, because it's so tricky, there's no right way to do this. There's no right way to stay in touch. But in those moments of overwhelm, of saying, I've got to turn off the television, I can't check Facebook anymore, I can't check the news anymore, to recognize that in setting aside for a time, we're not taking a deeper step in the direction of denial or refusal to see or perceive the pain of this world. Our distance cannot become denial, not if we want to be fully human and fully alive at this moment, and our full humanity is so necessary right now. I spent most of yesterday driving to a friend's father's funeral. He died in his mid-60s of cancer, uh, certainly a sad but in many ways uncomplicated grief. I was listening to the radio, and at some point it just became too much again, and I had to turn it off, not because I didn't want to listen, but because I was sobbing so much that I couldn't drive. But I know I didn't want to disconnect. I know I didn't want to take away what I was feeling. And so I brought an image to my mind. Maybe you have a lot of images in your mind and in your heart right now that you have witnessed over the last couple days. An image of a man, perhaps you've seen it, who I think is waiting outside the school. He's got gray hair, and he's just frantic with worry, and he puts his head in his, 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 head in his hands, and he leans up against a car. He was right there with me. And I practiced something that in the Tibetan is called tonglen. It simply means giving and receiving. In that moment of not wanting to disconnect, not wanting to numb myself out, I practice Tonglen, which is learning to breathe in another person's sorrow or suffering or pain, and imagining yourself breathing out towards that person love and kindness and light. Now, the Dalai Lama himself says he has no idea whether this actually helps the other person. <laughs> I have no idea whether it actually helps the other person. I'd like to believe that it does, that positive energy means something. It certainly means something more and better than negative energy does or harmful energy does. But this is what he says, and I absolutely agree with him. The person whom Tong Len or any heart-opening practice changes, it is ourselves. 
It is that moment in which we are choosing connection over indifference, love over hatred, open-heartedness over closed-heartedness, the entombing of our hearts, because the truth of it is that this school could have been any school. It could have been your kids. It could have been our kids. It could have been my nieces who live less than an hour away from where this atrocity happened. And so right now is a critical moment for all of us, an absolutely critical moment for our culture. And when we say our culture, it's so easy to say the big, broad culture, but no, I mean us, because we're part of the culture, us who are here today, right now. Do we take our collective sigh, not again? Do we take a moment to cry and say this is all too much, and then boom, Do we go on with the rest of our lives, normalizing our responses to yet another God-awful atrocity? Do we move ahead again with our lives, admitting somehow, thinking somehow that we're not changed, and just wait until the next time and say, how could it happen again? Rumi, the great poet, says, no, invites us. He says, don't look away from the bandaged place. Don't look away from the bandaged place because the bandaged place, the broken place, the hurting place, the brokenhearted place is where the light enters you. Sometimes in what's in that light, we don't want to see. It's still clear. It's still reality. And in this moment, we see a culture so violent. And I hope none of us are saying, I'm powerless because that's just another version of wait till the next time. A Christian pastor, a friend of mine who in his uh, church, in his tradition, when they offer up the communion table, they have a particular line in that communion table that I really love because I think it's bigger than just his own tradition. Part of their liturgy says, forgive us for approaching this table for solace alone and not for strength. We need solace right now, of course we do, but we need strength right now as well, because solace is just saying, ah, I'm injured, I'm wounded, and once I'm okay, then I can move on, but strength to change, strength to love, and as Dr. King told us, strength to love is what we need as well too. One of uh, things I read this past week that really got to me was an email or two, Andrew Sullivan is one of my favorite political bloggers, and this was a guy who was just dove right into all the media this past week. One of the things he did for about 45 minutes was listen to sports talk radio where he lives in Baltimore. And this is what this guy said. He said, when he listened, nowhere to be found was any discussion of why we breed such violence, what sickness our collective unconscious gives rise to such soaring levels of senselessness. I live in Baltimore. I hear it every day, a murder every day, often of children. And yet we're still such a great town because we've got the Ravens. And what a great season the Orioles had. Sports are just one example of many, many childish distractions that we use to ever avoid looking in the mirror and seeing clearly. He continues and ends, I still think this country is exceptional, but our heads are too far up our own asses to look at why we kill each other at exceptionally high rates. This is why, my friends, people, this is not a tragedy. Turn on the news and you will see tragedy in Newtown. It's not. This is a tragedy. If a fault line that was previously undetected opened up under Sandy Hook Elementary School and 28 people 
were killed by being swallowed up by an earthquake, that's a tragedy. Nothing anyone could do to avoid it. But this is not a freaking tragedy. This is an atrocity. This is an abomination. This is a crime. When we use the language of tragedy, and I have to believe it's one of the ingredients that keeps perpetuating the same cycle of violence over and over and over again, tragedy means we're powerless. It's just in the fates. It's in the stars. There's nothing we can do as human beings. There's no choice we have. There's no responsibility we have. But when we say this was a human atrocity, then we find that we're responsible. Not just soulless, but strength. David Frum, who's a, a political columnist who I like quite a lot, even if I disagree with him, he's a fair bit more conservative than I am. He kind of breaks it all down in terms that I absolutely agree with. He wrote this past week on Friday, a permissive gun culture is not the only reason the United States suffers so many atrocities like the one in Connecticut. A completely inadequate mental health system is surely at least as important a part of the answer. And so are a half dozen other factors arising from some deepest wellsprings of American culture. Nor can anyone promise that more rational gun laws would prevent each and every mass murder in this country. Gun killings do occur even in countries that restrict guns with maximum severity. But, but... We can say that if the United States worked harder to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, there would be many, many fewer atrocities like the one in Connecticut. Notice, atrocity, not tragedy. We have responsibility. Some people want to say this problem, this problem of violence, it's all in our hearts and not in our laws. And some people want to say it's all in our laws and not in our hearts. This is not a time for either or thinking. This is a time for both and thinking. The problem is in our laws and the problem is in our hearts. No less a resource, a national treasure than Martin Luther King Jr. who understood what it was like to change a culture that no one thought anyone could change. Revolutionize a culture peacefully. He said, there is no law, his words, there is no law that can make a man love me. But there is a law that can keep him from lynching me. And I think that is pretty important. It's in our laws and it's in our hearts. We have to think more broadly today. This isn't about perfection. This isn't about reducing all harm to the vanishing point. It is, however, about reducing the harms we can cause to each other. No solution will be perfect. Some of you know. Some of you know this quite well, that in China, on the same day, it was reported that there was a stabbing attack in a school in which 22 people were injured, not one of them killed. In Newtown, Connecticut, 27 people murdered. Folks, it is about the guns. Gun violence is different. And the response we need is also in our hearts. We're so easy and so ready to ask other cultures, what is it about them that produces suicide bombers that would make people strap bombs to their chest and blow themselves and other people up? And we are right to ask those questions, but we, do we have enough courage to turn it in upon ourselves? And what is it about us and our culture that makes young men, and it almost is entirely young men, 
over and over again, make this choice. Mental illness, psychopathology, whatever this young man was suffering from, and we don't really know entirely yet, and we have to hold our judgment somewhat. But mental health disorders and disease, these are universal. But what is it about our culture, our American culture, where we get mass murderers over and over and over again? I quote unapprovingly H. Rat Brown, one of the founders of the Black Panthers, because his answer to this was to approve his own violence. But he was absolutely right. American is, excuse me, violence is as American as apple pie. Until we face that, until we face that, until we see that in ourselves and in our culture, nothing will change. And I hope you are so distraught this morning that you are ready for change. I hope we're not waiting to the next time again. How do we create peace in an unpeaceful world and an unpeaceful culture? How do we talk to those? And maybe you're among those. I mean, I know someone who ran into uh, someone in the store the other day, and this person was emblazoned with this button broadly. NRA, freedom first. And that sends a message. And, you know, you hunt or have guns, that's fine. It's not my thing. I don't want to take that right away from you. But no freedom is absolute. And no freedom, no political idea, no theology, no nothing is worth the life of an innocent child. And this is long-scale cultural change. These are not quick fixes. There are people who will resist any change whatsoever. But if we really are so sick to death and sick to heart of Newtown, Connecticut, and places like it, we have to be willing to play a longer game. I know that there's some people who are planning to gather together on MLK Day, not just for service, but to call voice to how violence defames us and deforms us. At this season, preparing to celebrate however we celebrate or honor or recognize the birth of Jesus, not to make Jesus into, what's the ballad of Ricky Bobby, little divine happy baby Jesus, three-month-old Jesus with the bright shining eyes and the glittering teeth. Not that freaking Jesus, because that freaking Jesus is too damn sentimental and does nothing for us. No, the Jesus who grew up and said, blessed are the peacemakers because they are sons and daughters of God. That's the Jesus who we need. And by the way, that is a universalist message. It says nothing about doctrine in that. That is a Jesus who preaches to us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are sons and daughters of God. And there can only be peacemakers if there already is discord and violence. I ask, what are we doing here? If not to, in small ways and potentially in large ways, influence our culture and influence our nation to become less crass, less indifferent, less angry, less violent, less diminishing, less punishing, and more kind and more loving and more compassionate. What are we doing here if not that in small and large ways? 
There are powerful groups who will stand against any change, some out of conviction and some, honestly, folks, just because they make gobs of insane money from doing it and they don't care where their products end up. And so for us, somewhere in the midst of our busy lives, in the midst of our cluttered lives, in the midst of our pay attention for a moment and then move on to the next thing lives, to open our awareness and to pay attention, to vow the most crucial spiritual practice, which is not to be distracted. Life needs our clear commitment. We need our clear commitment. Rachel Naomi Remen is a doctor and a healer. And she, by the way, she gave me this image that was going to be the very core of my entire message today. I was going to start out with it, but things change. But the image still abides. She says a patient of hers years ago told her about an image she had, a dream she had once, not one night, that it was as if our lives were being circled by our blessings, like planes in a holding pattern, just circling and circling and circling and circling overhead for years almost, stacked up with no place to go, waiting for a moment of our time, waving for a moment of our attention and our clearness. You can land. If that message was true on Thursday when I was writing it, it is certainly true today because we're not just talking about our blessings. The dead children deserve a place to land in our lives. Clearing space for them, a space of attention and love and commitment and justice and connection and compassion to make room is so important. So we don't just slide on to the next thing. And then we wonder, how could it happen again? A couple weeks ago, I used some words from Joy to the World, the great Christmas hymn. And I glossed it a little bit. I said, let every heart prepare room. Just let every heart prepare room, period, room. And so today, I beg you, I beg myself, May our hearts stay broken open. The news talks about coming to grips with tragedy. Bullshit. Coming to grips? As if we could get a handle on it, manipulate it? Let's stay in this place of our hearts broken open for a while, folks. Let's not just have that cultural addiction of moving on to the next big thing. May our hearts stay broken open in pain and anger and sorrow for however long it takes, however long it takes for us to change. At least, if your hearts are broken, find another broken heart and don't be alone. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Serenity comes first in that prayer, dear God, but maybe today it shouldn't. Cheap serenity, 
Cheap grace, cheap ease, these things do not strengthen us. They are for momentary solace already. And so perhaps if what we really want is serenity, a serenity bigger than just our own hearts, but the kind of serenity that binds hearts each to the other in that divine force field of love and connection and belonging, if we would have serenity, let us remember that we must also be courageous and we must also be wise. May we have the courage to love, the strength to be aware, the ethical and noble calling of people who live wisely with broken hearts and see others' broken hearts as well, and to recognize that when we can perceive our lives with this clarity and be this clear, we can see the light of healing as well. Amen.